Have you ever wondered what it is like for people at the frontiers of neuroscience? Well then, you have come to the right place. Welcome to the quest with a special segment called Ask as AC, where we build curiosity and connection. A podcast series by Project Encephalon, where we host various guests from around the world, researchers, academicians, entrepreneurs from neuroscience and allied fields. Hi there, I'm Dr. Harsh Srivastava, a medical intern with a deep interest in neuroscience and your host for this podcast. I'm an associate editor at Project Encephalon. Together, we will explore topics around science, mentoring, and career development, finding inspiration and advice by listening to the life stories and challenges. We will also get to have a sneak peek into the way they think and how they are making a difference in this world. Let us get to it right away. For the first episode of our podcast series, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Samit Chakraborty. Dr. Samit is a systems neurophysiologist studying plasticity and interaction between the spinal circuits and the modulators, the sensory inputs from periphery and descending inputs from the brain. Currently, he's an assistant professor in neuroscience at the School of Biomedical Sciences, University of Leeds in United Kingdom. He is an alumnus of St. Xavier's College, University of Mumbai in India, where he did his bachelor's in zoology and biochemistry. He then proceeded to complete his PhD at the University of Cambridge and postdoc at Columbia University, New York and Spinal Cord Research Center, Winnipeg, Canada. One of the long-term goals of his lab is to establish an active conduit with engineers and clinicians towards better utilization of biological principles for sensory motor rehabilitation. Welcome, Dr. Samit. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Let us begin with how you got into research, shall we? So everyone listening to their podcast certainly loves science, but it is always great to hear the perspective of an established researcher. What led you to science and then to neurophysiology and translational research? So. I mean, to be very honest, I, was, I grew up in a very corrupt uh, world where scientists were all around me. So it, it was kind of easy for me to uh, think of it. And I, I say corrupt in the sense it corrupted my thinking, probably. Uh, uh, I, 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 was, I grew up in a very privileged environment uh, in uh, just north of Mumbai, where the first power station was built in India. Uh, my dad used to work at the power station, so that's how uh, everyone who works there is either an engineer, a scientist, or a medic, uh, primarily. So that kind of helped. And then um, the curiosity of science always has been fascinating. And uh, neurophysiology was interesting because that sort of allowed me to bring together my two loves with something that I never understood. And um, what I mean here is I I like math and physics, but I never understood biology. And to be honest, I still don't understand and that's why I'm researching it. Um, So it was a case of, I knew that I did not want to do something which everyone else was doing. Uh, I did not want to do a nine to five job. 
and I was always curious about everything around me and looking for patterns in because I, I, I used to paint I haven't painted for some time but that was another area where again looking at patterns looking at colors looking at things and trying to rationalize some thoughts so that's that sort of was where I come from in terms of what why science and uh, neurophysiology was sort of a chance to bring the three things together. And translation was a serendipitous sort of twist, I would say, purely because I started talking to patients after about 20 odd years of work, looking at cerebral palsy and developmental issues, and then suddenly realizing that the patients actually or the clinicians did not have a clue about what we were working on. And then it came to a point where when you talk to the patients, their needs were very different from what we were researching on. Uh, not that what we were researching was wrong, it's just they had not yet been provided with the very basic tool sets that we, ha we thought we had already accomplished and moved on and the clinicians were going to use it. So that's where I started looking at how do we take what we do in the lab, instead of just being uh, work that stays on a bookshelf on, in, in my office, to how do we actually make sure that it actually gets translated for the society to be benefited? And society at large, not just a few people, say, in the developed world, but also in the South, in the global South, and having, uh, I mean, being from India, it always was an important um, way for me to give back something to that society. That was amazing to hear about. A lot of us will relate to your story, how curiosity ropes us towards science. And absolutely, what you've mentioned about translational research, how clinicians may lack certain resources or methods to provide a holistic and effective treatment, which is where translational science comes into play. Yeah, it, I think it's the is that interaction. The conversation mm -hmm. needs to happen between the clinician because, as a clinician or an engineer, you look at a problem. Mm -hmm. You're both approaching it with a singular vision of how do we resolve this problem. You don't have the time. I'm not saying you don't, you don't want to. Yes, many of you do want to, but you don't have the time to spend on how do we approach that problem and what else can be done. And this is where we can come in because as physiologists, we sort of, that's our role. We are supposed to understand how these systems come together, how they interact, and how do we help both the parties to actually approach it with a way of looking at it holistically. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. that's where the solution lies, I think. And yes. That's, yes. that's the role we are trying to play. At least we are trying. <laughs> Talking about research in the biological sciences, it is a common notion that a student studying biology, especially in 11th, 12th grade, does not need to study mathematics. So, what is your take on this aspect of our education system, given the fact that in research, we often find both the disciplines intertwined? Yes, sorry. Uh, I did. I did like this question very much because it 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 hits the nail on the head. I completely disagree with that notion that maths is not needed. Yeah. But I also think um, we, we tend to categorize, um, especially in the Indian context, the students tend to get categorized very early on 
they're not given the freedom. You, we don't have that liberal uh, sort of studies approach to things. We also have this notion that you've got to have marks. I mean, I, I, I never quite enjoyed that concept of, you know, you have to have your 93% and higher. And I completely agree with the suggestion that there is, uh, as, as you study deeper into things, things get intertwined. And without that, you will never be able to understand the problems well enough. Um, so yes, maths is quite important. Mathematics is an important subject and a grounding in mathematics is very important. And what I mean by grounding is I'll be very honest if my old uh, math teacher, mathematics teacher is even listening in. Um, I did fail in grade 11. I did very well in grade 10 in my CBSE exams, but then failed in 11 because I never liked the way he taught it. Yeah. Um, and that's a common problem. So what we need is not just rote. We need a method whereby students are allowed to explore. Students are allowed to think for themselves. And that's something I still find is missing in the Indian context. Yes. And that helps children and students think differently and be able to bring concepts from one subject into the other. That's, I think, is important even for biologists. I completely agree with you. Math is the language of the universe. An understanding of math will certainly allow one to have a better understanding of the subject. Yes, it's it's the it's the it's the logic, it's yeah. the ability to logically deduce and introduce things is what mathematics allows you to do. Yes, that is true. So, how difficult was the path to reach the stage you are in? Any particular struggles during your PhD or maybe your postdoc <laughs> that you'd like to share with us? Um. Well, it began with, as as you all know, I did not do medicine or engineering. So that was the first step, <laughs> uh, convincing everybody around me that, that I was still doing something useful, um, which wasn't fun. Uh, many sort of stepped away and didn't like who I was at that stage, apparently. And uh, But they all turned uh, to be very good friends and everyone else became very good as soon as I got my admission into Cambridge, uh, <laughs> which happens. I had the luxury of being at Xavier's, which allowed me to sort of expand my um, horizons in a big way. And we had a very different approach there where the whole concept of categorized and sort of siloed approach was not um, enforced. It sort of allowed me to do a lot more. So Xavier's really was helpful being in my, for my undergraduate. For my PhD, I got admission very early on, but then uh, for various reasons, couldn't get the scholarship through the Indian end of things. Uh, we won't get into that. Uh, otherwise you may have to edit for too long. Um, instead, I landed up getting a scholarship through the university directly, but it was a long wait. I had to wait for about three, four years, um, which finally did kick in, and then uh, I turned up at Cambridge. Did face a funny scenario in postdoc where we got a lot of work done uh, in Colombia when I was working, and then 
the university made a mess of some of the paperwork and I was naive enough that I didn't check it carefully. So it put me in a scenario where I had to leave the country after two uh, two years within a few hours uh, <laughs> to save uh, some money. Um, but then, yeah, I could come back and then things moved on. Uh, the other one was having a post uh, supervisor who decided to quit science and go get back to his music. And that didn't help either because that means um, you don't get papers published. So yeah, things things happen, but that shouldn't necessarily stop us from continuing. So yes, struggles are there. That is very true. Struggles will always be there. And it was helpful to get to know about your struggles. This will keep us going when we will be facing ours. You have mentioned that one of your struggles was that you had neither studied medicine nor engineering. Your bachelor's was in basic sciences. Now you are into biomedical research. What is it that basic science students should do to transition into medical research without studying medicine? Also, which is better as a career, clinical research or industrial medical research? I think that's a tricky question because it's what you're passionate about. Um, So for me, it was, I wasn't interested in doing medicine because I felt it was too much rote. It was too much memorizing what is happening where and then sort of just recalling that, which I wasn't quite a fan of. I don't do, I I can't quite do rote. Uh, (laughs) I I just read. And uh, if I like it, I remember it. And so then I can create associations based on that. That's how I work in my head. So it's much easier for me to just enjoy gaining knowledge and that that's the approach that I've always taken. Um, in terms of whether you should go for clinical research, uh, you mean working with patients, I suppose, versus doing industrial, it's a case of what it is that fascinates you most. So for some of my students, when they come to me, uh, many want to go and work with a uh, university, sort of not non-lab is what they call it. And they often work with patients within the NHS system here. Um, But there are many who love the environment like a GSK. And they actually are keen to be in that lab environment. So it's it's very much a choice of yours. And it's also where you see yourself 10 years from where you are currently. But having said that, it keeps changing. That goalpost keeps shifting because your thought process changes. Like, for example, right now we are discussing... Um, I sit on advisory boards for multiple startups. A lot of these startups are byproducts from students who who are in my lab doing basic research or doing some sort of neuroscience research or engineers coming into the lab and seeing what's happening. And they've all chosen to go the innovation and startup route because it allows you to take things to the market and gain a foothold there. And it's neither quite doing industrial research, industrial research kind of thing that you described, neither is it really clinical. It's sort of sitting in between. Uh, so I I think it's what, what makes you sort of tick. Yeah. Uh, that's how I see it. That is correct. Everyone will have to understand that what to choose is a very subjective question. 
you'll have to figure it out for yourself. One's experience cannot be completely applied to someone else. Indeed, and I think this is something uh, I, I I just had forgotten that I'm talking in the Indian context as well here. Yeah. So <laughs> I know in the Indian context, the parents and the peers often play a significant role, mm. but ultimately it's got to be you who takes the decision of how you want to pursue what you want to pursue. And this is what I was uh, sort of hinting at mm. when I was suggesting that even at the school level, when we choose to say biology drop biology because that's not going to be useful to all mathematics mm. that 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 sometimes takes away your urge and your wish to do something in the future so i have friends who did zoology and now they're successful wildlife um sort of advocates uh, some of them are really really famous and popular in the country and really working uh, in the international sector so i have friends who, are, who did geology and did fantastically in geology, but they're actually into photography. And they're very successful photographers. But they came through that system, which we all go through in the Indian context, where we are channeled into what everyone thinks is the best thing for us. I somehow kind of didn't follow that. Yes, my parents were never happy about that then, but they seem to be okay now. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is okay with success. Uh, yeah, yes, to an extent. But again, parents are parents, so they will yeah. come back. Yeah. So, uh, since you mentioned the Indian context, and so regarding the Indian students, why do universities in the UK generally not provide funding to Indian students? How can this problem be dealt with in a better way? Since it is difficult to even find a fellowship than getting one. It's a very good question. Um, it's something that I'm trying hard to work uh, uh, around or against as well. So we are we are talking to a few groups locally uh, and in India to see if we can initiate some scholarship setup so we can allow students to explore that. There are some scholarships. The common argument you'll hear is that there are some Commonwealth scholarships and various other scholarships. But it's not as large and robust like you have for Germany and other places. Uh, In all honesty, the funds in UK may open up because currently the scenario was we were restricted with the EU rules to an extent. So there is one benefit of the Brexit is that we can actually open it up to other international students as well. So there was a limitation there. Having said that, student fellowships in the UK versus US is different. In the US, we can bring in funds. Uh, The universities often put aside funds for bringing in summer internships and uh, um, undergraduate students as well. Here, we tend not to have that. So what I'm trying to do is I have a master's uh, program in neuroscience. So one of the things that we are trying to do there is see, can we initiate, and there are some conversations going on higher up in the international offices as well, to start introducing, even if it's a partial scholarship, to make it easier for you all to sort of come and spend some time here. We're also looking at other ways. We're also looking at, do we really need students to come here? Can we organize it, say, run the course in in a joint manner? So you can do it online now that we have learned through COVID. We may be able to run the course online and then hold your practical classes 
here for you to come and do it. And if you can't afford to do that, then we do it there with some partners who actually run it for us. So there are some possibilities. So there are ways around it, how we are thinking of it. Those were really valid points. With a huge number of student researchers that India produces every year, we do need more funding programs from countries like UK. You shout out to you for trying to change the scenario for Indian students. Yes, but also keep in mind that the Indian environment, uh, it's not too bad in terms of what is happening there. I mean, okay, when I left in the 90s, things were not quite uh, ready for what is happening now. You do have an opportunity. I, 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 I feel it's something that we need to look into as uh, as peers, uh, as, uh, as supervisors, and you guys need to interact with them to see how you build that environment. Mm. You are the next generation, right? You you need to build that environment, what you want. Mm. And there is money there. You don't necessarily come to the West just to learn these tricks. Yeah. <laughs> so, you mentioned about remote mentorship. Due to COVID, students are looking for it. What do you think is the best way to approach senior scientists to get long-term mentorship? Just get in touch. Best of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I did. Uh, When I was a student, I still um, am friends with the person who actually helped me become a neurophysiologist. Because as I said, I did zoology, biochemistry, and you mentioned this too. the reason I did zoology and biochemistry was that that was the only thing I could do. I couldn't do physics and biology uh, or math and biology. So I had to do zoology, biochemistry. But I did not really know what neurophysiology was beyond reading books in the uh, British Council Library and University Library. So I went and pestered somebody at the Bombay Hospital who was a neurophysiologist, and she took me on and that's where it began and um, initially it was daunting because as in a clinical environment but then it clicked and we have since been talking and we are still very good friends and she was the one who recommended I should apply to Cambridge and so yeah you never know how it pans out yes you'll get lots of um, negative responses shouldn't affect you but just don't do one thing that many Indian students often do which is bombard Mm -hmm. (laughs) with emails which don't actually are not suitable for the lab that you're talking to like I get emails saying oh I want to do mRNA sequencing sorry I don't do those things (laughs) right so that's the best approach is how I would say it okay so neuroscience is such a diverse field which subfield of neuroscience do you think is the most exciting to do research in? And which ones do you think are the most important? You're asking the wrong person about (laughs) that because I think neurophysiology is the solution to all problems. (laughs) 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 Um, No, I I, I think in in terms of neuroscience, again, it's, it's what you think is your passion. So if you're going to be in the research sector, choose something that you really feel passionate about. Otherwise, you'll become a technician. Right? You're simply going to follow the rules. Yeah. If you want to think differently, if you want to come up with an idea, if you want to find a solution to a problem, it's got to be something that gives you that adrenaline rush. Every time you come up with a new idea, a new thought, you just go, oh, yes, that's something. That's what I want to take. 
if that's not happening, then that's not the topic you want to pursue. Yes, but that's that. That would be the simplest thought yeah. that I would have. But some field might be interesting, but the current scope in the field might not be as good. What do you think about those fields? Well, if you look at the way things are developing, um, so genetic therapies is something that is in in big demand and big moves are happening. So, but we still need to understand those aspects really, really well. So, there will be a lot of scope there because there will be things that will go wrong, and there will be a need for understanding this again. It's I believe in the holistic thinking. I don't believe in that uh, the idea that one channel modification will alter something that is going to fix the whole problem. I think one channel modification will lead to 20 other possibilities that need to be addressed. So again, looking at it holistically, which in some ways is basically large data sets. AI. AI is a big field, but AI, the way it is currently, is not really suitable for healthcare. It is suitable for image processing, to be honest. For healthcare, we, no two individuals are the same. So we need to have tools that actually can be suitable for day-to-day -day, uh, use in a clinical environment. So there is a big demand there. But again, you're, I'm drifting into what I like. <laughs> so uh, I'm afraid I'm, I'm, I am pretty biased at that. So yes, uh, the other other one is um, there's a common trend to make things in a developing country which has worked in the developed country, but that's not always the best case. For example, I once asked, got asked about a neuroprosthesis that was developed in the West and see if it can be brought into uh, India. And my first question was, can you squat with it? Mm -hmm. Because person with, with an injury in India is likely to be in, not in the urban environment where people don't use chairs. So if you can't squat, this whole device becomes useless. So it's a very nice, beautiful device, but it can't be used. So those kind of thoughts can be applied in the Indian context. And you guys can take that up and develop that side of things. Yes, absolutely. Um, we come across beautifully written books such as Biochemistry by Leninger or neuroscience by Mark Baer or Eric Kandel. But because of the current education system that holds several internal and external exams in a short span of time, we end up getting trapped in the hamster wheel of cramming these books again and again, just to pass exams with good marks. In this process, most of us lose the beauty of grasping knowledge at a meaningful pace. And so some of our basic concepts are left behind. What tips would you give to science enthusiast students who are eager to learn but unfortunately, are caught up in this never-ending cutthroat race of getting marks. Um, <laughs> don't go for marks. <laughs> I know I'm probably going to be hated by all, all the teachers, but um, I personally think students should not be going for marks. You need, I mean, your exams should not be about how much you memorize. It should be more about how much you understand. Um, so some things that we have started introducing locally in the courses that I run is we do not hold exams where the students are asked to regurgitate what is happening in class, but I give them um, things which they have to think about beyond what they've been taught and incorporate that by reading up. 
extra things and they have to bring that into the writing and that's when they do the get the higher marks they don't get the marks for what they regurgitated best um and yes uh, i mean i'm infamous for walking out of exams myself during um, even at xavier's where i just felt didn't feel like answering the question and i just marked uh, did enough so that i could pass and not be bothered you can't get away with that i agree um but at the same time it's something yes it it it, it does stop you and um, some of us are privileged enough that i can use visual memories that is quite an interesting strategy definitely if people in charge of conducting examinations decide that the system needs to be changed in a way which focuses more on the how to think part and less on the what to think part it might as well become a reality here in india but again uh, if if i may add i think it's it's you all who are the system right you are the students i'm not suggesting you're starting a revolution but i'm saying you can start asking for those changes i'm sure the um, management and the teaching teams will look into it teachers were students at one point even they must have felt the need for these changes maybe if students voice their opinion against it a change might happen mellow it down a bit but yes uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, i agree <laughs> um i mean organizers group conversation between teachers and students yep yes initiate initiate that conversation around neuroscience if you want i can bring in colleagues who are into pedagogy from here who are already doing this kind of work across the globe yes. and i'm sure they will be more than happy to sit down and talk to both students and teachers about it right right so your work on neuroprosthetics is exciting could you tell us more about what kind of future lies for neural prosthesis and the research in this field also how important is the understanding of molecular mechanisms behind neuroplasticity in this field of neuro rehabilitation the two very different side of things so um in terms of neuroprosthetics we look at development uh, our, our primary interest is to implement physiological understanding into these designs that are for helping somebody move so essentially what we are interested in doing is restoring function the best we can and not just solving the problem of moving from point a to point b kind of a thing so for example when you are picking up a cup of coffee or a cup of tea you're constantly adjusting your muscles because as you take a sip the load drops but you don't suddenly lose control of the cup and so so you're able to adjust very quickly but if you're using a prosthetic device that adjustment takes time because it's an actuation system the actuation has to be preset and so on and so forth so what we are trying to look into is how do we take the physiological understanding that we already have because we think of things as a mechanical and an electrical system can we implement those concepts in uh, neuroprosthesis and neuroprosthetic control systems and that's where i'm going in the long term and 
the thing that neuroprosthesis research needs to get towards is that how do you make them suitable for the person who needs it? And at the same time, how do you make sure that it is light enough, easy to use, it's modular, it's not like if I, uh, I, I have to use one hand for one particular task and then replace it with something else. Can we make it such that you can simply you know, replace a part of it and that does the job? How do you make sure that it's cool enough to wear? Why should a child wear a prosthesis if someone's going to ridicule them for wearing it? So these are little things that don't yet factor in when it comes to uh, prosthetic design because right now it's solving a problem. But we need to consider bringing in people from textiles, people from uh, fashion industry, people from design sector to sit down and say, if you are to take this and take it into the market, how will this be appreciated? Will this be looked at as a clinical tool, looking like a, you know, our old-fashioned wheelchairs in India, which we often have seen? I still remember them being metal rods um, with a flat metal surface. That's not going to fly. Why would somebody wear take that with a white color, <laughs> looking like you just come out of the hospital, to move around town? You want something which has a bit more of a flash. People look at it. People stop looking at you as a disabled person. They look at you as somebody who's got something cool. And I think you've got to bring back that confidence. And, and so it, it involves more than just developing a tool and solving a problem. So that's the direction of travel that I think um, neuroprocesses as such and for disability, we need to start thinking about. Yeah. And that, that's a big conversation we can have separately. Yeah. In terms of neuroplasticity, and molecular mechanisms. There is a lot of work going on there, and a lot of, and again, it depends on what What do we mean by neuroplasticity? If you're talking neuroplasticity in the neuro rehab, the molecular tools are more towards understanding, can we trigger or undo or reset certain interactions? So for example, a simple uh, thing that we commonly know of in my group, we often look at, is when you have an injury, your body reorganizes itself, and we call it activity-dependent changes. So in the absence of, say, the signal coming from the periphery, the signal coming from the brain takes over. And similarly, if the signal coming from the brain, so for example, let's say the corticospinal tract, which is primarily for the uh, fine finger movements, is removed, the other pathways will take over. So if you are to restore function, or you want to at least restore it to a better state, how do we allow these new pathways to actually form the right connections? Because if you train them, if you retrain them, they might reform to form a pathway that is actually useful. And we know that this happens. Post-stroke, people recover. That recovery does not involve the pathways that previously were there. Now there are other pathways. So these are the kind of aspects we need to look at. And so, yes, molecular mechanisms that help us undo or redo some of these connections would be very useful. And there is a huge scope for that in the near future. You have mentioned some very fascinating points. How neural processes must be personalized for everyone. And that... It should not be seen just as a clinical tool, but more like something which will be a part of the human body. Having people from different fields, such as fashion designer, 
customizing it according to a person it's a great thing for the people who will live with those processes okay moving on the work that you do requires a multi-pronged approach your lab must have researchers from varied fields how do you choose the right researchers for the right students for your lab so again this is a very good question because there, this has two parts to it and i need to be careful about how i answer it to be honest uh, because i personally look for students who have a passion that's the first rule that i have if i'm choosing to work with somebody i'll i'll knock on your door seeing uh, so my collaborators commonly are uh, i look through what they've done hear them talk and I will send you an email or knock on your door and say, could we have a chat and see how passionate they are about what I am passionate about? So that's a starting point. If the passion is exist in existence, then I know we will find a way to talk about things that we like, right? It's the same thing with the students. I want students who can carry the work forward without me having to tell them every step of the way what needs to be done. The reason being, if you believe in what you are doing, then you are going to take the responsibility and do the best of what you can. And yes, you will fail, but that failure should be something that you learn from rather than just me telling you off and saying, that's the end of your future. <laughs> and I think that's what I look for. And Having said that, pure passion is not how the system works anymore. So you have to have your two ones, uh, which is a high second uh, or a high first. Uh, you have to be able to show that you have papers and so on and so forth. So it becomes a bit more of a combination of the two. So uh, when the student applies, I'm looking at, I'm, I, I personally look for the passion in the cover letters. I may even have a chat with them separately to see what can be done. If they have a publication, then I'll do put that as a recommendation, saying that the students' grades may be low, but their overall capability, I think, I feel they would be a good fit. So it's a balance of the two, and, but the passion is the key. Yes. Again, I'm, 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 I may sound too romantic on this matter. <laughs> no, there's nothing too romantic about it. And in science, if you don't, do not have passion, how, how will you even continue to keep finding those answers? So, yes. Yep. A bit of an extension to the previous question. So if we were to approach a professor whose work interests us, but is it different from what we have pursued so far? Will there be any chance of getting a position in their lab also? What approach should we follow in such a case? Um, again, uh, I would say express what you want to do, how you would benefit the lab. Because if you're coming to a lab, don't think of yourself as coming in just to be a part of the lab. If you commit to something and you can provide something, then there is a better chance of an interaction and you becoming getting involved in them lab work right so uh, in in my group as you rightly asked if i mean we do a multi-pronged so most of my students are not biologists i have lots of engineers in fact more engineers now than others um we collaborate with mathematicians and everyone else and 
the most common thing that they have done is they have come to me and said, I want to pursue this. I don't understand much of this, but this is my background. And what I tend to turn around and ask them is, if you were to get this problem, how would you tackle it? And that immediately gives me a framework that I can then tinker with because I can provide them the biological thinking and the physiological understanding, which they don't have. But I'm gaining a new expertise in say mechatronics or electronics or, or mechanical engineering who can benefit my team, my group, and in the long term might also help me take it to the outside world. So we recently have started having conversations with uh, a social, social political scientists as well. We have been working with business school, uh, a very good colleague from business school that we work with on how do we take rehab into the community? Uh, because it's one thing doing in the lab. So yes, interactions are important, but then again, it, it's the same process that I pursue, which the students need to pursue. You go up to them and you say, here's what I'm coming with. Here's what you have. I can give you these tool sets. Can we start talking? How do we benefit each other? Can we see the common benefit? So if you approach a lab with a common thought, have a conversation, have a read, have a careful thought about why you want to do it. Again, it comes back to my favorite word, passion. That's the driving force. What you want to do is trigger that commonality between the two people and say, this is what I feel you are looking towards. Can I help you in that journey? Yes. You want to be a part of that journey. Does it make sense? It does make a lot of sense. Anyone who applies to a lab will have to assess first. What do I bring to the lab? As Dr. Samit has rightly pointed out, it is a give and take process. You bring certain skills and perspective to the lab and in return, you get the biological expertise or expertise in whatever field it is. As an academician and researcher, you must be aware of publish or perish. Do you think it, it is worth publishing lots of small papers as compared to getting a lot of hands-on research experience? without any possibility of getting a publication out of it? I would say always try to get a publication, even if it's a short, small article, a letter in a small journal. Don't go for journals that are predatory because we don't tend to bother with them, but journals which at least have a basic reputation. And in the current environment, upload it to a um, you know, preprint site. So you at least know that the world has looked at it and now you can talk about it. Because if you don't have anything, then there is very little record of you having done something. And that does affect you in some ways. Hands-on is very important. It depends on what level you are at, to be honest. Mm -hmm. If you are an undergraduate student and you have hands-on experience that you have done, you, that's good enough because then I'm aware that you, you're passionate because you have actually gone ahead and done some things in your summer vacations or your uh, holidays. You haven't sat at home and just watched Netflix for that matter. So that tells me that this person is keen to understand and keen to know. And again, in relation to the previous question, this is where you can show that you've already looked into possibilities of jumping your 
uh, uh, jumping away from your topic of study. You've actually gone ahead and explored something. You may not have a publication because you've jumped onto a different topic, but that shows the experience and that's a hands-on experience. On the other hand, you can, if you're really passionate and you really know exactly what you want to do, you can go and join a lab and you may have a name on a paper, even if it's in between 20 others, you have a paper. As an undergraduate, as a master's, that's good enough. But if this question is something about somebody doing a PhD, you need to have papers during a PhD. It's a must. You cannot afford to not have a paper or journal uh, presentations at conferences at the end of your PhD. Yes, hands-on research experience definitely counts. However, for a scientist who may not have enough time to get to know about your experiences right away, having papers in your CV seems to be the best way to convey that you're the right person for the lab. Yeah, it's again thinking between, say, the Indian experience and Indian students applying abroad. One of the things that we often find is you, you say things on your CV and you'll mention um, pub, published in a journal that I cannot access, yeah. right? If I cannot access it, maybe send the paper because not saying send 20 papers, but send the paper if you think that's relevant. Because what that tells me is that, okay, this paper is good, but not published in a good place. And that can help sometimes. Yes, absolutely. So, Dr. Samit, what final piece of advice do you have for the budding researchers, particularly those who want to build a career in neuroscience? Also, do suggest your favorite nonfiction fiction or neuroscience book. <laughs> Um, the first rule is don't get bogged down by any rules. The rules are there to break because the rules are made by somebody who studied it and understood the best they could. Re-examine the rules sometimes. See if you can change them. And the, nothing is hard and fast. Uh, don't make it a religion is what, what I'm basically suggesting. I mean, even in religion, we should be open to thoughts. Don't get dogmatic. And this, again, going back to the first question that you had asked about, how do you how do I see math and biology? Because if you don't do that, you will never be able to get out of that silo thinking of, oh, this is how I have to think because this is how I've been taught to think. And that is not going to help in the near future. So that's my advice in neuroscience. And yes, just think about carefully why you want to do it, what it is that is you're passionate about, and talk to scientists. I'm sure people are more than happy to respond if you send an email that is well-written and, you know, doesn't go on for pages. But you ask a question, and I'm more than, I mean, I personally am happy to respond to emails if there are questions, if there are uh, ideas that you want to explore, if I can help more than happy to. And there are plenty of others who are here, I mean, with the Indian context again, who will be more than happy to help you if you want to. So that's not an issue at all, is how I see it. But in the, from your perspective, be really passionate about what you want to do. Uh, okay, now coming to what I, what else <laughs> do, do I like? In terms of neuroscience books, my favorite book is 
Carpenter's neurophysiology, and every student of mine is going to now, if they ever hear this, they will be smiling, uh, because that's the book I recommend to anybody who I talk to. Um, because that was a book I used for, in the British Council Library to teach myself neurophysiology. He taught us in Cambridge, and then now I use it all the time. Um, in terms of fiction and non-fiction, well, it's most, I mean, I like poetry. Um, and yeah, I like Neruda. And I, I, after seeing that question, uh, something that struck me was, there was a grade four, five poem in Hindi, the only Hindi poem I ever remember, which was, I think something on the lines of, uh, it was about birds and freedom. Okay. And so, yeah, I, I do like uh, listening to um, poetry in Hindi, Urdu, and English. I like Neruda as well. And William Blake is another man that I really like. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I should stop there. Otherwise, uh, now I'm drifting into other. <laughs> Fine. That, 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 was, that was a really precious advice, and it was great to know about your personal interests as well. Well, that brings us to the end of this conversation. It was enlightening and motivating to say the least. I believe this will satisfy the curiosity of our listeners. Dr. Samit, thank you so much for taking out time for the benefit of budding researchers. I hope you liked it as well. All of us here at Project Enzaflon are grateful. I should say thank you to you all for actually giving me the chance because uh, I it was really fun to actually have this conversation because I hadn't thought of a lot of these things that you've just asked me about for a long time. So yeah, it was useful. Thank you. We are glad that you enjoyed the session. Thank you to all listeners for staying till the end of this podcast. To know more about us and what we do, head over to projectensoflon.org. Take care and stay safe. Until next time, when we will be back with another amazing person, from the field of neuroscience.